0: I hope nobody goes away saying, guess what this church preaches, live for yourself. You know that that's a joke, right? It's actually more of a a joke on us. It kind of tells us what we're really so often like. Uh, This morning we begin a new series called Values, a Guide for Living. And uh, this uh, little presentation, meant to be humorous, has got a message for us, my friends. And the message is this. is what are your values what are my values how are how are we living our lives did you ever wonder uh, how you got to where you are today did you ever wonder that Did you ever ask yourself the question how did i get myself into this uh, in, in some cases it might be a mess <laughs> in other cases it might be really good did you ever ask yourself how did i get here how did i get to this place and why are things difficult for me And why are some things easier for other people? And why do some things seem to work out better for other people? Um, Did you ever wonder why things are the way they are in your marriage or in your family or in your career? How did they get to be that way? Have you ever been in a situation where you were not sure what to do? You weren't sure how to make a decision? And have you ever wondered why or how you should live this life? These questions that I've just presented to you are values questions. These deal with a person's values. And um, I uh, looked up the, the word values, and this is what the dictionary said about them. The values are a collection of guiding, usually positive principles, what one deems to be correct and desirable in life, especially regarding personal conduct. And so basically, what we're saying here is that our values determine how we live our life. And uh, hopefully, uh, these values are, are good values, correct and desirable. But you'll notice that I, I highlighted the term or the words usually, uh, usually positive. Because the fact of the matter is, is that unless Jesus Christ influences our values, our values aren't necessarily right, are they? They're not necessarily correct. Let me give you an example back in 1987 there was a movie that came out called Wall Street anybody heard of that it um, it got a lot of attention because of the message of the movie and we find in the movie the main character by the name of Gordon Gecko, uh, played by Michael Douglas he's addressing the stake or the stockholders of his company called the tell paper company And so he stands up and he gives this message to the people of his company. And he says this, very shocking words. He says, the point is, ladies and gentlemen, is that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies. It cuts through and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its forms, greed for life. For money for love for knowledge has marked the upward surge of mankind and greed you mark my words will not only save teldar paper but that other malfunctioning corporation called the united states of america now this this was so shocking in 1987 it's hard to believe but it was extremely shocking back then it was it was a topic of conversation on television, on talk shows. Uh, all the talking heads were were going at it, discussing the what it meant and, and how it would affect us, and if it was true, was greed in fact good? And some were just, some were on the were with Michael Douglas on this. Yet yes, greed is good. And others were absolutely not. Churches and pastors were were speaking out against it. But what we recognize is that now life was starting to imitate art. Usually art imitates life, but now life is imitating art. And we found what was happening is that in our culture, in our society, this became a value in North America. We saw greed as a good thing. We saw getting, having, possessing, getting more, and getting more as a good thing. And we somehow talked ourselves into believing that it was, it was totally logical, it made sense, and it was good for us. And, of course, fast forward 30 years, and what do we discover? We discover a country. Uh, We discover a continent in, in financial and moral discord, in financial and moral declension beyond anything that we could have ever imagined. Who would have believed that it would get this bad? Well, my friends, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Your values always determine your action. Your values always determine where you end up in life. And so here it is. Look at point number two here. Integral to every culture, these values that are integral to every culture generate a behavior. So in other words, you will end up doing whatever you believe in. Does this make sense? Whatever your values are will determine what you do and how you live your life. So where you are now, you did not get there by accident. It was either you or somebody else in your life that had certain values that brought you to the place that you are. Here's what else the dictionary said about values. Values answers the question of why people do what they do. So here's the thing. You could say, uh, if I ask somebody here, do you believe in feeding the poor? You say, oh, yes, 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 Pastor. I believe in feeding the poor. That's my value. My next question is this, when's the last time you went to feed the poor? And if you said, well, I haven't actually done it, but I believe in it, then I have to say, well, it's really, you really don't believe in it. It really isn't one of your values. Because the fact of the matter is, is that you always do what you believe in. You always will do what you value. Your values always determine the outcome of your life. So here's the fourth thing that we learned from the dictionary about values. Values creates expectations and predictability without which a culture would disintegrate and its members would lose their personal identity and sense of worth. Now here's the thing. Every organization, every culture, every church, every religion has a set of values. And it's these values that bind that organization together. It's, if you will, the reason to exist. Now we've got a problem here in North America today because so many Christians or so-called Christians, I'm going to say, because not everybody who says they're a Christian is a Christian. Not everybody who believes they're a Christian is a Christian. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. But let me say this. If we are not practicing and living up the values of Jesus Christ, then we are no longer a reflection of Jesus Christ, and we cease to have a reason to exist. We were in Banff this past week and I saw advertised, I won't tell you which church it was, but advertised on the sign outside of the church was Wednesday night is movie night. Now think about that for a moment. And one block over is the cinema that's got not just a movie, but four movies. And they're current and they're new. So I could go to this church and go see an old movie or I can go one block over. I can take my pick of any any movie that's just fresh out off the presses. Now you say, um, what, what are you driving on here, Pastor? Well, just simply this. That movie house knows what its job is. It wants to produce and put out brand new movies so that its customers will always get what they're looking for. Let's move to the church now. What is it driving at? Did you expect you'd go to church to see a movie? Is that the purpose of the church? Is that what the church stands for? Is that the reason for the church to exist? And of course, you know the answer to that rhetorical question. The answer is, no, that's not what it's there for. And yet, my friends, here's the thing. Is that most of us don't recognize it. we don't understand this. Because we don't really understand what our values are. So for the next five weeks, including, this would be six weeks, including today, we're going to talk about what your values, what my values need to be as Christians. What is it that we believe in? What is it that we stand for? What are, what are the guiding principles that guide our life? And the fact of the matter is, friends, is that if we lose our values, if we lose the distinctives that make us who we are, then we will cease to exist. As a church, we will cease to exist as a force of light in North America. And guess what's happening? That's happening. We're ceasing to have an impact on our society and our culture. Guess why? Because Christians have adopted the values of this world, so there's almost virtually no difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Do you hear what I'm saying today? This is serious stuff. Can I ask you the question this morning? Are you, with the people that you work with, the people in your family, the people you live with, the people in your community, would they, would, they, would they say that you are a believer or would they say, I'm not sure? It's amazing to me that people who are in the world who don't know Christ and who don't make a profession of Christ seem to have a better understanding of what it means to be a Christ follower than Christians do. Has anybody noticed that? He'll sit back and say, "He calls himself a Christian." Yeah. Did you see the way she's talking? She calls herself a Christian. We got a problem here. So the very first value that I want to discuss this morning is this: is that you and I need to be like Jesus. That has got to be your value. That has got to be my value. That's going to be the guiding principle. The very first at the top of the list is to be like Jesus. The difference between a believer and an unbeliever is seen in the decisions he or she makes and the desires that he or she has. you get that? That's, that's what marks the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. That's how we know the difference. So I want to talk about that this morning. First of all, your decisions, our decisions. The average adult in the USA and in Canada makes a very large number of decisions every day. Can anybody guess how many decisions you make every day? Anybody? Just yell it out. How much? Hundreds. Hundreds. Thousands. Anybody else? 2,000. Do I hear three? Three. (laughs) Three. (laughs) Do I hear four? (laughs) This is unbelievable. uh, Scientists have determined that that the average human being in North America makes at least 35,000 decisions every day. 35,000 decisions every, Some of them are, are moral decisions and some of them aren't. For instance, uh, should I shop at Sobeys or should I shop at Safeway? How many know that that's not a moral decision? <laughs> or should I shop, shop at Superstore? That's a moral decision for me. <laughs> Or should I shop at Costco? Actually, that's a moral decision, too, because when you go to Costco, you can't help buying something. (laughs) Listen to me. If you're making 35,000 decisions a day, and many of them are moral, and others are not immoral, but amoral, and yes, some become immoral, how do you make your decisions? How do you determine what you should or should not do? What's the deciding factor about whether you should go ahead or not? Well, let me take you back uh, over 100 years ago to a book that was written by Charles Sheldon called In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? It's a best-selling book. It's uh, the 39th best-selling book of all time with over 30 million copies sold. This is a Christian book, over 30 million copies sold. And the the uh, the book begins like this: a beggar appears in church one Sunday morning, and um, asking for a little bit of food, asking for help, whatever. And uh, every you know everybody's you know uh, doesn't look presentable. He didn't wear his tie or his suit jacket. I mean, what's he doing here? Does he really believe he's got a right to be in church dressed like that and smelling like that? At the end of the service, this beggar comes forward limps forward, stands in front of the congregation, and he confronts the congregation. And he says, I'm not complaining. I'm just stating facts. He tells them about their, compa- their lack of compassion. He talks about how the, he, as well as so many others like him, were homeless, not because that they squandered anything, but just because of their situation in life. And he said, he asked a very simple question, where is the spirit of Christ? And right after his little speech, he collapsed onto the floor and then a few days later died. The minister, Reverend Henry Maxwell, is so deeply moved by what happened in his church, he challenges his congregation one Sunday, after preaching this sermon, he asks uh, those who want to move on with God to stay behind. He's got a challenge for them, a challenge that's to last a year. And, he's, and here's the challenge. He says, over the next year, do not do anything. Do not do anything without first asking the question, what would Jesus do? And it's from this book, written over 100 years ago, that we get the WW. J.D. you know that you've, you've seen there's it's on t-shirts it's on bumper stickers it's on wrists on on it's it's everywhere it's it's around the neck we've got this thing plastered everywhere wwjd and now it's it's even gone further it's uh uh it's it, it, it the, the secular media has got a hold of it and and the question now is uh you might remember this back about a year ago it was what would jesus drive anybody remember that uh, should should Christians drive SUVs or not, Dad? Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just joking there, Pa. <laughs> that was the question. What would Jesus do? And um, it began a revolution. What would Jesus do? We we read in the book about how the church now is transformed because they are starting to make decisions based on what they believe Jesus would do, and families are being transformed because the people in their families are asking themselves a question how would jesus react and how would jesus treat each other and marriages are transformed and and beyond that uh, the community is transformed and and in the book the the uh the bars are closed down i mean i'd love to see the brooklyn's closed down anybody say amen to that and how about the one beside it? That'd be great. It'd be great to see these places closed down. I wonder what would happen if Christians took seriously this challenge, to make a dec- every decision based on what Jesus would do. Now, here's the th- here's the problem: is that you and I may have a, have this idea of what Jesus was like and what Jesus would do. But the point is this: you don't know unless you have a walk with Him. And this is why I tell you, almost on a weekly basis, you've got to read your Bible. You've got to get to know Jesus through his word. It's the only way that you can do what Jesus would do. You've got to know him. And by the way, next week, guess what I'm talking about? Walking with Jesus. I'm going to tell you what it means to walk with Jesus. This has got to be your value. This has got to be the thing that drives you. This is what has got to be what determines how you live your life. And so the very first step that we need to take here is asking ourselves a question. Am I being like Jesus? Being like Jesus is the first value of every believer. Asking yourself, what would Jesus do? Verse 22. Let's let's, let's read these, these verses here. And this, by the way, this is the scripture passage that actually drives the premise of this book. And if you have not read this book yet, even though it was written over 100 years ago, it's as as exciting, as thrilling, as enriching, as inspiring today as it was 104 years ago. I read this book as a young 20-year-old, and it absolutely transformed the way I saw my life as a believer. I challenge you to read this book. And this is the verse... These are the verses that drive the plot. And if you would read this with me, I'd appreciate it. To this you were called. Are you with me on this? To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Here, my friends, listen to this. The Bible is clear about this. This is not an option for those of you who call yourself believers. If you call yourself a Christian, you're going to ask yourself the question, what would Jesus do? You're called to do this. This is how you're called to live. This is not an option. You're called to live like this because Jesus left an example for you. Now listen to me. In John chapter 1, verse 14, what does it say? The Bible says that Jesus came from the Father, came from heaven, and 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 came to dwell amongst us, John, John chapter 1, verse 14. Now, in the Greek, you know what it, it literally says? And I like this because um, uh, I can relate to this. In John chapter 1, verse and in the Greek it says, Jesus came and he pitched his tent among us. Isn't that good? He came specifically to dwell amongst us. Why did he do that? He did that so that he could teach you, and not just teach you, but show you how to live in this life. And so your, your calling, your value, and now your goal is to be like Jesus, to do what Jesus would do. And so husbands and wives, I'm going to challenge you this week to, to challenge each other on what would Jesus do. And parents, challenge your, parent, your, your children. Children, challenge your parents, asking yourself the question, what would Jesus do? Nicholas, uh, back last year, went golfing with, uh, with one of his grandpas. And, um, and after going golfing, he really enjoyed it. He did a good job. In fact, he did maybe a bit better than, than average. And um, his grandpa asked him, do you want, it's not this grandpa, by the way, uh, do you want, would you like a set of golf clubs? I've got some good clubs, and I'll give them to you if you want them. If you want them, I'll bring them back. Uh, from Florida and give them to you and so Nicholas said yeah I would love to have a set of golf clubs about two months ago he was over visiting and uh, now there was a condition attached to the offer and the offer was would you like these golf clubs yes I would I still want them yes I still would like to have the golf clubs okay but do you promise that you will use them every week do you promise that you'll go golfing on a regular basis do you promise that you will get good use out of them. And now Nicholas is faced with a dilemma. Because he can either tell his grandpa what his grandpa wants to hear, or he can tell his grandpa what the reality is. And he had to say, well, I can't can't promise that. And so because of that, Nick did not get his golf clubs. Now that's not the end of the story. But here's the thing. Nicholas, and I'll tell you the end of the story in just a moment. Nicholas had a decision to make. He was either going to do the right thing, he was going to tell the truth, he was not going to make a promise he could not keep because that would be lying. This is where your values come in, people. That would be lying. So he said, I can't promise that. And so he didn't get the golf clubs. Now I, was, I have to tell you, any parents here? How do you, how do you feel when your kids... Don't get what's promised to them. How do you feel? You forget your values, don't you? <laughs> you're you're angry. And I went and talked to talked to my folks. I said, "What was that about? You made a promise. Now you've got conditions attached to it." Well, he said he wasn't he wasn't promising to play. And I said, so "Look, it. The kid is 14 years old. He does not drive. He hasn't got a driver's license. He he won't sneak out with a car behind my back to go golfing." I don't have time to take him golfing every week. I, haven't, I can't do that. And so he answered truthfully. He, he did not tell you what you wanted to hear. He told you what the truth was. Now, I understand that, I mean, what they were looking for is some kind of a, an enthusiastic response from Nicholas saying, yeah, he'd do his best to golf till his hands bled or whatever happens when you golf. <laughs> but he didn't do that. He just simply told the truth. Now, when that, when that I, believe, I believe with all my heart that God wanted to teach Nicholas a lesson, and that is to be truthful no matter what, no matter what the cost. And uh, the good news is that Nicholas did end up getting his golf clubs after it was, it was explained that he was just trying to do what Jesus would do. How do you make your decisions? Because if, the point is this. If you're making decisions that don't have the influence of Jesus Christ on them, then, my friends, you are not living like a believer. Plain and simple as that. You're living like the world. Or as, as uh, Peter would put it, you're living like a pagan. That's, what, that's exactly what Peter said. Listen to what he says here. He says, dear friends, I urge you as aliens, and this is for Christians, by the way, for people who don't know Christ, who have not put their faith in Christ, then you just listen along, but this doesn't apply to you. But if this is for people who say, I am a believer. I am a follower of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires, which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. Who are the pagans? People that don't know Christ, people who are, who are not Christians. Did you know that people who do not know Christ, that people who are not Christians are called pagans? That's what they are. That's what the Bible says. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. My friends, this is, what, this is the kind of life that God's calling us to. Now, I want to tell you this. Uh, corporations, big big corporations, understand how important values are, and there was a big fad in the 1990s, and and uh, they're hiring uh, the, uh, uh, consultants to come in and lead uh, boards of directors on how to develop value statements for the company. And then the company would, would, would put the big, big list of values on the wall for everybody to see. And the values would be something like this. Uh, uh, we value honesty and integrity. And we value love and, and that sort of thing. You know, you get the point. Because the companies understood how important values are. And, uh, and then the next thing was that every individual should come up with a value statement to say what, what it is that you value. And uh, Stephen Covey came up with uh, that. He su- suggested that every family, every couple, every marriage, every human being come up with a, a list of values that they could live by to determine how they would live their lives. And one, one fellow on the Internet decided he was going to help by coming up with a list of values. Well, here it is. We've got 374 values here that you can choose from. And it starts with a, with the A's and ends with Z. Abundance, acceptance, accessibility, accomplishment, accuracy, achievement, acknowledgement, activeness, adaptability, adoration. I'm not going to go through 374, don't worry. But it ends with youthfulness and then zeal. I like those two last ones. Now, 374 values. Okay, so pastor, which one should I like really zero in on? Well, here's the neat thing. Is that when you make your mind up, that you really want to follow Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, because by the way, that's what a Christian is, is someone who loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, then guess what? All those values are lived out through your life when your number one desire is to be like Jesus, because Jesus is perfect. Did you hear that? Look at that next verse. Look what it says there. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we may die to sins and live for righteousness. That, my friends, is what the Christians what Christians are called to live. By his wounds you have been healed for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Your decisions need to be very simple. What would Jesus do? Your desires are similar it needs to be this, to be like Jesus. Your decision, your decision to be based on what would Jesus do, and your desire needs to be to be like Jesus. Is that your desire this morning? What is your desire this morning? What do you really want more than anything in this world? If I came to you and held the microphone to your face right now and I said, what's your greatest desire? If you're a Christian, if you're a Christ follower, the, the right answer is, I want to be like Jesus. That's got to be the number one thing in your life. And if it's not, and even as I speak, the Spirit of God is putting his finger on your heart, and you know that you're not where you need to be spiritually if that's not your number one wish. I, I would say this to you this morning, that when you're converted... Your, your desire is no longer for you. It's to be like Jesus. That's, that's a sign that you have, in fact, given your heart to Jesus, that you have, in fact, decided to follow Jesus. You want to be like him. In fact, we read in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. So here's the thing, as you seek God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then all the other things that you need in your life will be provided for you. But your number one pursuit, your number one desire has to be for Jesus. Now I'm going to say this to you this morning, no one can be a Christian just by acting like one. Just because you say, you know, Pastor, I'm really living by WWJD, that does not make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is that you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You've, you have asked Jesus to come into your heart, and you have now d- died to sin, and you are now living for righteousness. In other words, you said, Jesus, I believe in what you've done for me at the cross. I believe you died for my sins. I accept you into my heart. I want you to take control of my life. If you've done that, my friend, then you have asked Jesus into your heart, and you are converted. Now, here's the thing. If you're converted, the new way of living is going to be for one thing, to desire to be like Jesus. Now, here's the thing. This morning, I don't know what it is that you've come to church with. I don't know what struggle, what pain, what problem. I don't know what need you have. I don't know what struggle you have. I don't know what temptation you've had. I don't know what heartache. I don't, I don't know what's happening. here. But I, I know this. I know this. God knows all about it. And God's got a word for you today, and it's this. You need to get on your knees and seek Jesus once again. You need to put him first in your life again because he's not been number one in your life. For those who put Jesus first in their life, for those who say, Jesus, I want to be like you, that's the most important thing in my life, those are the ones who begin to see their life come back together again. They're the ones that see that mess cleaned up. They're the ones that see that nightmare turned into joy. They're the ones that see the anguish turned into joy. I'm telling you this morning, your number one desire must be to be like Jesus. And if you will do that, if you will determine right here and right now as the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart, and right now the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart, you need to say, okay, God, give me the grace Give me the strength, and I, I actually i feel impressed right now to pray. Would you just pray with me, Father? I believe that there are people here this morning who are hurting, and and uh, I have never done this before. But I sense in my heart, in my spirit, that there are people here who are hurting beyond belief, and you are calling that person, these people, to turn their eyes upon Jesus. And to remember that the first priority is not the need they're going through, not the problem they're going through right now, but the first desire and the first priority is to seek Jesus and to be like him. God, would you do that work by your spirit right now? We pray it in your name. Amen. Now I'm going to tell you this this morning. Your desire must be to be like Jesus. And here's why. Here's why it's so important. Because this, is in fact God's plan for you. Did you know that? If you've been listening to, the, to the, the Tommy Rot on television, the TV preachers are telling you God wants you rich, and God wants you never to experience a difficulty or struggle or suffering or whatever, it's nonsense. This is what God wants for you. I'm going to tell you this morning what God wants for you more than anything else. This is the most important thing that God wants for you, and we read it in Romans 8:29. It's God's plan for each of us that we be conformed to the likeness of his Son. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, even in this life, we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. Galatians 4.19, Paul is working with the Christians at the church in Galatia, and this is what he says. He says, I'm working with you until Christ is formed in you. He knows his job is done when Christ has been formed in each of the believers in Galatia. In Ephesus, he told the Ephesians that our goal is attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So you get the point. Your new purpose in life, your new identity in life, is to be like Jesus. That's what you want. It's a desire that tops out every other desire, more important than anything else. The, the new self, we're told in Ephesians 4:22 to 24 is to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Jesus came to this earth to teach us how to, how to live like him and how to be like him. My friends, here's the amazing news, is that we're not, we're not just hoping to be like him in the next life. We're already like him in this life. You thought you had to wait to get to heaven to be like him. It begins here and it begins now. I want to say this to you right now that when you have a desire to be like Jesus, and when you ask yourself the question, what would Jesus do, it radically changes the way you live your life. And if your life is not being radically changed, then, my friends, this is a great big red flag in your face warning you that you're off track, warning you that you're probably not where you need to be, warning you that maybe you're not converted, or warning you that maybe you're backslidden. Listen to this. This is very shocking. The Apostle Paul is speaking to the Christians in Corinth. This is really shocking. This is what he says to them, because there's problems in the church there. And he says uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 9, he says, do you not know, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Because there's some people that think that, I, I came forward and, at a Billy Graham crusade and I said the sinner's prayer and I'm going to heaven. ka and Paul says, oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. He says, don't you know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, I don't care whether you said a sinner's prayer. I don't care if you even attend church every Sunday. I don't care if you even have, a, have eight or ten Bibles. The wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God, he says. And then, listen to this, listen, this is amazing. Paul says, don't be deceived, because there's many Christians in North America who are terribly deceived. He says this, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, idolaters being people who worship almost anything or anyone other than God, in other words, putting anything or anyone other than God first, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. If this is what you are, then you are not inheriting the kingdom of God, my friends. You are not ready to see the Lord the Lord will pass you by. This is very serious. And then Paul goes on to say, after giving this list, he says, and that is what some of you were. This is what you were before you became a Christian. But you were washed. You were sanctified. Sanctified means set apart for God. You're made holy. You belong to God now. You were justified as though you had never sinned. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. My friends, your value has to be this to be like Jesus. Which means you're not going to be living like this. And I'm going to tell you right now frankly, you are not ready for heaven. Frankly, you're in big trouble, very serious trouble. And if this morning you are one of these people that's on the list and you feel a, a quaking in your heart, then you need to talk to me. You really need to talk to me right away, at least right after the service. You need, to, you need to phone me. You need to email me. You need to get in touch with me. I need to help you. I need to pray you through because you're not ready to see Jesus. My friend, here's the amazing thing is that when you have the value, it says, I want to be like Jesus, then these things are not a problem for you. These things you will shed. They will fall off of you. And you will begin to follow Christ. Last year at about this time, almost exactly this time, we had the very rare opportunity as a family to travel to Europe, we went to Rome, and uh, the very, almost the very, very first thing that we saw was the Colosseum, and if those of you who don't know what the Colosseum is, it's that great big building where they had the gladiator fights. We went into that Colosseum, and I just sort of stood there, leaning on a, on the ledge just looking at the arena. And I suddenly had flashed before my eyes the events of what would have taken place there. It was a place of incredible bloodshed and gore as a way of amusing and entertaining the population. Every imaginable animal was butchered and killed and maimed for the sake of bringing pleasure to the crowd. Did you know that lions once roamed Europe in great multitudes? Lions, wild cats. But because of the games at the Colosseum, every lion in Europe was wiped out for bloodshed. And if that were not bad enough, they had games where they put Christians to death. They watched wild animals devour Christians, Christians trying to defend themselves against the attack of these wild animals. And the crowds roared with pleasure at seeing these followers of Jesus Christ devoured, eaten, ripped apart before their eyes, And to add to the pleasure, they decided what they would do was they would have what they called gladiators, men condemned to die, dressed up like soldiers, given armor, given weapons of warfare, and they were to fight each other to the death. Obviously, whoever didn't die won. One day, this tiny little monk had reason to visit Rome He left his monastery. And uh, he heard the roar of the Colosseum. And you have to seek the Colosseum to recognize or to understand how impressive a building it is. And at that time in the world, that was the most impressive structure built by the hands of man. And Telemachus had to go and take a look. He comes into the Colosseum. And he sees to his horror two men fighting each other and drawing blood. And he looks around and he hears and sees the pleasure and the roar of the crowd calling for blood and more blood. Telemachus is a devout Christian. And immediately what comes to his mind is, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? His desire was to be like Jesus. And so what he did is something unheard of. He worked his way down from the upper bleachers down to the edge of the, of the arena and he let himself over the edge, tiny little man, quite a fall and he runs into the middle of the arena and he says, forbear forbear stop stop this in the name of Jesus now the crowd is, is angry A moment ago they were reveling in the bloodshed and now they're angry at this little monk and who does he think he is? Get off! Get out! He refused to move. He held his ground and he yelled all the louder, stop, forbear, forbear. Finally, one of the gladiators thinking he would win the favor of the crowd, walked over to the little monk who had neither sword nor armor nor shield, and he stuck him through with a sword. The small little monk collapsed on his knees, looking upwards toward the crowd. Not saying a word, he collapsed in a pool of his own blood. The crowd went silent. They'd never seen anything like this before. A man willing to sacrifice his own life for the sake of Christ. And at that moment, the gladiator games came to an end. Never again it was blood shed in the Colosseum because one man was willing to say I want to be like Jesus what would Jesus do my friends I'm going to tell you something this morning far greater than getting the blessing and having what you want and getting what you want is giving your life to Christ so that your life counts for eternity This, my friends, is authentic Christianity. What you're hearing this morning is authentic Christianity. It's the real thing. God's calling you to make your life count so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep growing astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. My friends, Jesus is calling you to something greater, something better than than your experience and something better than you're living right now. He's calling you to be like him. Yes, Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. Are you willing to do that? That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. When you say today, Jesus, give me the grace Give me the grace to make this the most important thing in my life, my most important value, to be like Jesus. Would you stand with me, please, as we pray? God, this morning, this has been a wake-up call. This morning, this has been a call to something higher, something greater, something grander than anything we could ever know in and of this world. You're calling us, Lord, to something far greater. This morning, God, you're calling us to be like Jesus. And our desire this morning, Lord, our desire once again is to have a life that counts for you. And the only way this can happen is if we... Submit to you and say, God, our desire is to be like Jesus. Help me to do what Jesus would do. God, we thank you this morning for your grace. We thank you this morning for your power which is available to us to live this life for your glory and honor. God, help us, we pray, to submit to your will and purpose for us. And we give you thanks. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Now, Lord, make your face to shine upon each one. And give us peace until we meet again. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me. Amen. Amen. God bless you. God bless you.